Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back as always. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Folks, I wanted to start us off. We're in the middle of the World Series, and it's a pretty good one, wouldn't you say, Haley? Oh, yeah. My goodness. The past two nights. The Phillies and the Astros are tied at 2-2. Game five is tonight, Thursday, I believe. And wouldn't you know, there's a legal hook. There's a legal story. Your Thank boy, God. yours truly was all over it. This <laughs> week, I wrote about this uh, small shop in Philadelphia, law firm, that is literally, it sounds like a joke. It's called Top Dog Law. And they, the, uh, the guy who founded that firm is a man named James Helm. And he's a huge Phillies fan. And as the series shifted to Philadelphia, he took out some ad space that is an advertisement for his law firm, but also takes a very unsubtle shot at the Astros for cheating during the 2017 season. It says... Uh, this is this big billboard off I-76 in Philly. Quote, had a funny sign, but the Astros stole it. <laughs> I absolutely That's love this pretty so hilarious. much and yeah, deeply yeah. hate the Astros. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, yeah, if there were ever heroes and villains in anything, I mean, the, the, the Astros really suck. Um, but the guy, <laughs> the guy seems to be having fun with it. I, I interviewed him for the story and he was obviously pretty pleased with himself. And just, uh, he also pointed out, Haley, I hadn't even like paid attention to this. I only kind of have had these games on in the background. There's apparently been, while not as like serious cheating allegations as the sign stealing, which is he's, which is what he's referring to here. I guess in the first couple of games, there were a couple of minor dust-ups over like some, uh, the Astros catcher using an illegal bat and then maybe yes. something, something else. So like the guy was pretty proud of himself that he got a fresh news hook for this. Yeah, it's indeed uh, still timely. Always timely. And frankly, you know, I mean, I, you'll never hear me. Like, I'm never going to stop talking about this because it's just so flagrant and, and so ridiculous. But anyway, big ups to James Helm. Fun little story there uh, to, uh, to inject a little bit of humor in the baseball season there. That is a fun one, Alex. Glad you wrote about that. But I do want to talk about what we have upcoming in today's show. We talked to our senior competition reporter over a big antitrust ruling that just came down over a deal between Penguin and Simon & Schuster. The DOJ had challenged that in court, and the DOJ won. That, that merger is on hold for now. And so he sort of explains the lay of the land in publishing. And uh, spoiler alert, it's complicated how all of this works. I heard print was dead, just regardless of what's going on in antitrust. But Matt is always on top of the stuff, and he's uh, very plugged in here. Yeah, uh, still some money there, Alex. So people yeah, are definitely yeah. fighting yeah. about it. Come on, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> I've right, got right. so many holds at the library right now. <laughs> I mean, anytime there's money to be argued over, it's going to spill into a lawsuit and be covered on pro se and... That one's a bit of a doozy. So Matt breaks it all down for us. It was a great talk. Well, I want to kick things off with, you know, one of those stories that we tend to gravitate toward. This is another story about an attorney in some trouble. And this time it is a Seattle attorney who is accused of fabricating an entire news article and news outlet <laughs> to bolster his client's argument in a super long running dispute with Chevron. I wanted us to talk about this one, not only because this is a pretty interesting allegation against the attorney, but also because this case itself is pretty noteworthy. You've likely heard of it. It's, I mean, long running is uh, an understatement. It's this dispute 
between Chevron and the heirs of a Saudi leader over a purported $18 billion arbitral award. And that award goes back decades and decades and decades. Yeah, this case came across my desk a few times on the trade beat because it has to do, it's, an, it's the recognition of a foreign arbitral award and there's all different kinds of overlapping stuff, which I'm sure you'll get to. I'm, however, very intrigued to know what's going on with the invention of a fake news outlet, uh, mostly because my first frame of reference for this is on Nathan for you when he invented the Diarrhea Times. <laughs> yes. I don't know if this is anything oh, like that. Fielder. but Thank anyway. you. Thank you for the shout out to our Lord and Savior, Nathan Fielder. Yeah, well, <laughs> we could spend an entire episode and probably several episodes recounting the Chevron thing, but just catch us up on the basics here and why we're talking about it this week in this specific context. Right. Like you said, there's a ton going on. But what you need to know now is the dispute centers on a 1933 concession agreement that the Saudi government signed with Chevron's predecessor, Standard Oil Company. So, you know, really says something about how old this dispute is that Chevron was not even called Chevron yet. Right. So the heirs in this case contend that in that agreement, Saudi Arabia and Chevron specifically identified the heirs' ancestors and mutually agreed that those landowners would be paid rent. So this essentially comes down to they're fighting over back pay for rent. However, Chevron has maintained that this entire case involving the heirs is a fraud. The purported arbitration over this was a sham. And last year, the Ninth Circuit agreed, concluding that the heirs had never entered into a binding agreement to arbitrate this dispute. And the Supreme Court has also refused to hear the case, I think, a couple times. So those are the highlights, but I certainly recommend taking a spin through our coverage for a much more comprehensive overview. It's a really fascinating case. Okay, so let's pivot to what Alex and I are dying to talk about, which is what's up with this attorney? Usually when you say fake news, you mean news that is uh, not always factual. You don't mean totally inventing an outlet. <laughs> Indeed. So the heir's lawyer here, he's a man named Edward C. Chung, and he allegedly wrote or directed someone else to write a fictional article for a fictional publication called The Saudi Sun. <laughs> and when Chung filed this article with the court, he said that it provided an informative summary of factual and procedural events related to the arbitration. So even though the merits of this case have been rejected, the Ninth Circuit appointed one of its judges to serve as special master and look into the legitimacy of that article and Chung's conduct. That judge, that's Senior Circuit Judge A. Wallace Tashima, issued a report finding that Chung indeed fabricated the article and recommended that he be sanctioned. Judge Tashima also recommended referring the matter to the Washington State Bar or the Appellate Commissioner for disciplinary proceedings. Okay, as a lawyer who went into journalism, I get the appeal <laughs> of being an attorney who really just wants to write an article. But let's hope most of them aren't entirely fabricated and also submitted to the court. Yeah, I mean, one route would be to, you know, Law 360, we have our third party section. Good point. A, sure. A Much plug cleaner. There. But yeah, so this Judge Tashima pointed to a few things here that signal Chung was behind this. They're fairly entertaining, I have to say. For one, the judge said there appears to be no such news publication and Chung hasn't offered any evidence that it exists or how he obtained the article. 
And then on top of that, the judge said the content of the article is extremely similar, virtually identical to Chung's own court filings in the Ninth Circuit and with the district court. Bro, bro, you got to clean it up, man. If you're going to invent, <laughs> if you're going to invent news out of whole cloth, don't plagiarize from your own court filings. Man. Also, I got to say, if you're going to make it so similar to what you've already filed, what's the point? Like the courts heard that argument. Already. Yeah, yeah. And, and to, the, to your point, according to this report, at least five lengthy passages in the article were taken almost verbatim from Chung's court filings. Wow. And the article features the same images that appear in <laughs> Chung's court filings. Awesome. So Judge Tashima said Chung clearly filed the article, quote, with the intent to deceive the court into believing that the exhibit was the publication of an objective third-party news organization thereby bolstering appellant's claim. You know what? I'm going to take this as a win for journalism because this attorney thought that the power of independent journalists would be so persuasive that this was worth doing. So that's that's good for our profession. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm flattered, I I guess. (laughs) Right? Like, (laughs) sort of. Um, But, okay, so none of this sounds great for this attorney. What are we expecting to happen next? The judge recommended that the Ninth Circuit panel order Chung to cover Chevron's attorney fees stemming from these proceedings. And he also recommended those disciplinary proceedings that I mentioned. So one thing that Judge Tashima declined to consider in his report was that Chung also failed to appear at a hearing over this in August. And Chung had told the court he was going to boycott the hearing he pointed to professional ethics rules stating that a lawyer could refuse to comply with, quote, an obligation imposed by law upon a good faith belief that no valid obligation exists. The judge during that hearing, um, when he didn't show up, did not take too kindly to that, but he ultimately opted not to address that in the report directly. He did say that the panel may want to include that in its referral for disciplinary proceedings. So, like you said, Amber, things are not looking fantastic for Chung here. However, this was only a recommendation, and we're going to have to wait for the panel to officially make that call. I didn't really realize this when we were planning the show yesterday, but there is a little bit of a theme here, a through line, in that this is another story I want to talk about. Lawyers who are just addicted to drama, much like Chung, Mm. just scaring up bogus news coverage out of goddamn nowhere. Anyway, there is uh, a very interesting dispute underway in New Jersey. This, uh, that's the crux of this story. This involves a popular YouTube lawyer, which I learned as I was researching this, people who are lawyers on YouTube and give kind of unsolicited legal advice call themselves law tubers. They do? Oh, I did not wow. know that. Apparently, huh. uh, you wouldn't believe the things you can learn when you look into this little subculture, which I'll talk about a little bit more. Uh, so this particular law tuber, this YouTube lawyer, is suing a website for defamation after this site published claims that basically cast doubt on this person's like credentials, his reliability, and he got sort of called out by this website that kind of styles itself as like The disinformation police, which obviously is a hot topic on social media discourse most days. And there's a fine line between who gets to call what disinformation in certain contexts. Uh, So there's lots to pour over here. Okay, not to derail this entire segment, but I am (laughs) going to need you to explain everything you know about YouTube lawyers, because 
is this my future profession? It might be. It could be. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to. I mean, you said it, not me. I don't know if you're unhappy with what you're doing here at Pro Se. Or <laughs> Love anything, being but, with you guys, but I just well, like to keep options. <laughs> Got to have options. So tell that's, me about my future fair. life, Alex. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble or have lawsuits or whatever, but tell me about this YouTube lawyer culture. Well, there are people. The first YouTube lawyer I ever came across is actually last year when we were doing the Pro Se Movie Club. And there was a guy who basically did like, he would kind of do what we did on the show, which is like fact check movie like litigation and stuff. Yeah. Pretty good. I, that guy's name is escaping me right now. Anyway, the YouTube lawyer, these are just people who have law degrees and they either practice or don't practice, but they tend to comment on news stories of the day. They bring some measure of expertise if they practice law and people are into it. This kind of sounds like what we already do, except Alex and I haven't been to law school. Well, uh, but I have. So I'm literally sitting here being like, check, yeah, check. well, <laughs> seems good. And we don't pretend otherwise. Anyway, uh, this um, is true. the <laughs> guy, the guy who is bringing the suit is named Nathaniel Broughty, and he runs a YouTube channel called Nate the Lawyer. And that has uh, something like 250,000 subscribers. It's a pretty, pretty good deal. And like I say, he just kind of, he takes the news of the day, does legal commentary, et cetera. Brody uh, sued this guy, Christopher Bowsey, and he runs this website called Bot Sentinel, which as the name indicates, they police bots, disinformation on the internet, and they kind of hold themselves out as this like ombudsman for social media disinformation. And the site basically flagged Brody's YouTube channel, Nate the Lawyer, on Twitter. They basically cast out on whether he's even really a lawyer. They also asserted that when he was a university police officer, he he was like planting evidence on people. Oh, wow. It kind of just started as like, um, they were calling him out as like sort of being disingenuous. And then he filed this suit. And the suit basically cries foul on Bot Sentinel's entire model Pretty good bit of legal uh, writing here, too. You guys know I, I like to hone in on well-crafted slams uh, when I come across them in legal documents. But the complaint uh, accuses this website of employing, quote, catchphrases, techno gobbledygook, sleight of hand, and a healthy dose of crowdfunding to throw up a cyber smokescreen festooned with enough bells and whistles to enchant the untechnical and the uncurious. Damn, bro. Yeah, Damn. that's... Wow. Bring in, bring in it. That's pretty each, great. Each <laughs> next word was better than the one before. I know it really builds, right? I, I, <laughs> I, I had to, I had to tip my cap just as a, just as a uh, composer of sentences. Yes, it's so interesting to me that this bot sentinel would go for something like, "We don't even think Nate is a lawyer," because isn't that really just easy to check? I mean. <laughs> We're all right, licensed. That was my very like, first thought. Not... Like, all you have to do is look it up. Yeah. Um, and I want to give some more context about what this site is all about. Because it is interesting. I mean, it's obviously very easy. And we fall prey to this sometimes, too, about, like, painting heroes and villains of certain stories. Um, but it doesn't fall very neatly along those lines in this case. So Bot Sentinel actually rose to prominence when the site was hired by the legal team of Amber Heard during the oh. Johnny Depp defamation trial. And Bot Sentinel was tasked with basically examining whether and to what extent there was like coordinated social media campaigns against Amber Heard, um, which there was a lot of that going on as we've covered that on the show. And the site turned attention to Nate the lawyer uh, in September 
when a bunch of other law tubers began to cast doubt on whether or not there actually was, obviously people were critical of Amber Heard online. That's just a plainly true statement. But this guy and a couple other law tubers basically cast doubt on whether it's like a coordinated widespread campaign against Amber Heard or if it's just like a couple of one-offs. But Bowsey, who runs this site, he tweeted, among other things, that, quote, he can't tell if this guy is a legit lawyer or just a social media lawyer. And to what you, and to your point, Amber, he did later rescind that. Um, Nate, the lawyer, is a licensed lawyer in New Jersey. He basically said, okay, the guy is a lawyer, but he still like was referring to him as a troll, a grifter, and that's what led to the suit being filed. And he's just, it's beyond just beefing on the socials. We're beefing in court now. Look, I mean, you can be both. You can be a licensed practicing attorney and also a troll. I mean, that's not mutually exclusive. You certainly can, yes. Yeah, so what Uh, (laughs) should we know going forward? Anything else to kind of like keep an eye on here? Yeah, it's a freshly filed complaint. So I, you know, I'm, I'm just going over what is alleged in this document, as we say from time to time when we talk about new filings. Cases filed in New Jersey state court. We'll keep an eye on the docket. One thing, I don't know if it'll gain traction. I mean, defamation suits can often be settled with someone literally just issuing like a full-throated apology and then it can go away. We were kind of poking fun about law tubers and like the level of celebrity they have. I would be interested to know, you know, whether um, the defendant here might try to argue that Nate the lawyer is a public figure, which gives you a different standard for defamation. You have to show actual malice. We've we've talked about that before. I'm a little fuzzy on whether like how big your social media following might have to be to actually qualify as such. I don't know if we'll even get that far, like I say, but certainly an interesting one uh, playing out in the Garden State. we're talking about big news in the publishing industry. After a district court blocked Penguin Random House's planned $2.2 billion purchase of Simon & Schuster, the court said the deal would hurt competition in the market for rights to anticipated top-selling books. Here to talk us through what happened with the giant merger is senior competition reporter Matt Perlman. Welcome back to Pro Se, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a while. Uh, We always have you on here to talk about these big, giant deals that face some competition scrutiny. And let's just start with the deal itself. Can you kind of give me the big picture of what this was all about? Uh, Yeah, sure. So basically, I mean, so the way the government describes it, the book industry in the U.S. is is basically just dominated by five big companies. Uh, That would be Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, Macmillan, and Hachette. So Simon & Schuster is the fourth biggest publisher in the country. Uh, It's currently owned by uh, the company called Paramount Global. Uh, Paramount Global is what used to be uh, Viacom CBS. And so when it was going through its restructuring a couple of years ago, they decided that uh, publishing uh, was not going to be a core part of their business and that they wanted to sell uh, Simon & Schuster. So among the bidders uh, for Simon & Schuster were Penguin Random House and HarperCollins, uh, which are two of the other big five publishers. Uh, there were some other interests from financial investors, so something like a private equity firm or something like that. Uh, Paramount ultimately agreed to Penguin Random House's deal, uh, which is a 2.2, around $2.2 billion in November so Penguin Random House is actually already the largest U.S. book publisher. Um, it is itself the product of a merger uh, between Penguin and Random House uh, back in 2013. Just hearing you talk about this, Matt, so far, it's like 
it's all names we know, but you can see the consolidation sort of happening just in the way you're talking about it. It's all big conglomerates that buy one of these other units and kind of narrowing it down. So is that how it caught the scrutiny of the government? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the fact that it's two of the you know big five publishers is definitely you know made, made it something that the government was going to look at regardless. I mean, yeah, and, and, it, and the publishing industry has been uh, scrutinized before. There was a, a conduct case a couple of years ago involving uh, price fixing of eBooks. Uh, they accused Amazon of colluding with with these big five publishers uh, to fix the price of eBooks when that was first getting off the ground. So this is definitely like an industry that the DOJ is familiar with and was going to take a look at this deal, uh, especially considering the players involved. Well, once the DOJ did get involved, it got pretty spicy because I know you cover a whole trial on this. It was like a three-week bench trial over the proposed merger. Can you tell us about that? What stood out to you as key points in that trial? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was it was uh, definitely an interesting trial. Uh, yeah, the so the government basically alleges that the deal is going to give the combined company uh, too much control over how much authors get paid. And, and ultimately, this means that there will be fewer and, and less diverse books published. The, the authors making less money will mean fewer people can make a living off books and fewer books will get published uh, in the end. But so, the, yeah, the trial was interesting. I mean, so the, the, I think the, the star witness for the government, I guess you'd say, would be uh, Stephen King. Uh, he came like the second day of trial. Um, How so weird yeah. is it to say the phrase, the star witness for the government <laughs> is Stephen King? Um, <laughs> as a longtime Stephen King reader, uh, I would have been pretty psyched to hear what he has to say about the publishing industry. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and he, he like sort of walked uh, through his experience in the industry, which is kind of surreal hearing him talk about how he got like paid twenty five hundred dollars uh, for Carrie in 1974. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> and then got, you know, like seventy five hundred bucks for Salem's lot a couple of years later. But then, he, he you know, he kept it, it. But it is Stephen King. And so he also walked through the part of his career where he makes, you know, millions and millions of dollars off of books and how he's sort of at a different place now uh, than he was back then. Uh, but yeah, he, he did make a pretty forceful defense of, of the government's case and, and the idea that uh, that it's been getting harder for authors to make a living and, and that consolidation in the publishing industry is one of the reasons why. Uh, so he did make a pretty forceful argument. The judge didn't have too many questions for him. She kind of just seemed like uh, she seemed like she liked him a lot. <laughs> uh, everyone <laughs> in the courtroom was was pretty much hanging on his every word. And then the defense didn't ask any questions. Uh, it was probably in their interest to, to just let it go. So the defense didn't ask him any questions, but I'm sure they did have a lot of arguments of their own. What was their response to this idea that it was going to sort of drive down the value of what these authors are paid? Yeah, so a lot of the discussion was about sort of how books are purchased and and sort of the method or the, I guess, the process behind it. So like in, in a lot of cases, there's an auction for a book. So there'll be uh, a book, a, a literary agent will shop a book around to different publishing houses and to different imprints at the publishing houses, and then there'll be a, sort of a, an auction uh, to see who places the highest bid for the book. So the, the companies were arguing that, you know, not only do they face competition from the other big five publishers, they also face a lot of competition from sort of these independent imprints, uh, these sort of smaller publishing houses. Uh, and in addition to that, there's also competition among imprints at the publishing houses themselves. So each publishing house owns uh, several dozen uh, imprints. And those are sort of like subsidiaries that have like a specific specialty or focus within the publishing industry. And and so uh, there was a lot of talk about sort of how authors pick which imprints they're pitching to and, and sort of how much competition there is amongst the imprints themselves and, and among the big five publishers and also the, yeah, the smaller publishing houses. That's a really interesting point about the imprints because on the face of it, it it's a little confusing about 
if uh, two imprints are under one big company umbrella, do they really try to outbid each other? And how does that all work? Yeah. So and that was one of the major points was that um, prior to the trial, when, when Penguin Random House first made this deal, I think they uh, well, so they have, they've had a longstanding policy where they allow imprints that they own to bid against each other on a book as long as there's another bidder involved. So they can't be the last two bidding on a book. Uh, so they, they made this offer to try and show that there would still be competition, uh, the same amount of competition that there was before the deal went through afterwards. But yes, yeah, so, but there's still a lot of question about what sort of what the level of competition is between different imprints that are ultimately owned by the same company. Stephen King like sort of made fun of it when he was on a stand. He said it would be like a husband and wife bidding on the same house. Uh, yeah. Kind of a ridiculous offer. It does have that vibe. And I'm sure the government is a little skeptical about a company just saying like, oh, I mean, don't worry about it. We'll voluntarily like let this bidding war continue. I mean, that's, you know, it's it's just a promise. There's no real enforcement behind that. So right. that's that's sort of an interesting way to try to assuage the concern, but I'm not sure it's ultimately too successful. Right. Well, so the other another point that the publishers are trying to make too is that there's not always an auction for books and that sometimes uh, they just have relationships with authors that allow them to sort of buy books outside of an auction, outside of a competitive process. And like those books are not going to be affected by this deal at all. Uh, so an example, like the Simon & Schuster CEO, uh, Jonathan Karp, had mentioned that like uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, didn't talk to anybody else when they bought his book. They were the only people he talked to. So there's a, it's another sort of dynamic to the publishing industry. Uh, so it makes it sort of not easy to predict what happens from the deal. Yeah, I mean, I knew the publishing industry was pretty complicated, but this just kind of lays bare exactly how divergent some of these deals can be. And, and it's not just one clear straight path for every book. I'm also very interested in you sort of telling us a bit more about who exactly the government's trying to protect from this deal, from this merger, because it is a little unusual in competition law for the focus to be on sort of these advances to authors who are essentially like workers instead of just a focus on end consumers. That's what I'm more used to hearing in cases about merger review, where they're worried about like the price consumers will pay. And that's not really what we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. I mean, aside for the the big sort of company names and people involved in this case, I think the reason that it's caught attention from antitrust folks is because of that, is because it's it's a it's a merger challenge not focused on prices. In most merger cases, you you, you would say that the deal is going to lead to higher prices because it's consolidating sellers. When there's fewer sellers, right. they can raise prices because there's less competition. Um, here, the government says authors are going to be paid less for their books. So the concern is centered around Penguin's power as a buyer in the market for book rights. So it's, it's what they call a monopsony case rather than a monopoly case. Love that term. Um, I feel like we're really helping people with their Scrabble, um, <laughs> letting that out there. Um, yeah, so that's interesting, too, because I guess the ultimate end argument from the government's perspective is that this is essentially bad, not just in pure competition terms, but just bad for society, that like there'll be less authors who get books published, sort of less knowledge out there in the world as well. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, traditionally, in most antitrust cases, too, at the end of the day, the, the the issue that we're dealing with is consumers. We want to know whether right. or not a deal is going to hurt consumers or make things better for them. And here, yeah, the the harm they're alleging is to, to authors, but ultimately they're saying that authors being paid less is going to have an impact on consumers and society in that there'll be fewer books published and it'll it'll affect which authors are able or, or which people are able to make a living off of writing. Right, right. So no tiny stakes here. I mean, we're talking <laughs> about some big, heady issues. We did get a ruling from Judge Florence Pan this week. What do we know from what the judge had to say? 
Yeah, not much. Uh, She issued an order uh, blocking the deal and basically just said that she found that it would hurt competition in the U.S. for uh, publishing rights to top-selling books. Uh, So that's the basic theory of the government case, but we don't know exactly, you know, sort of how that ruling breaks down or or so what aspects of it she she agreed with. Um, So, yeah, there'll be redactions filed and we'll have some version of the opinion, I guess, issued soon, maybe next week or so. But yeah, in the meantime, the companies both say they're going to appeal. Penguin said they're going to be looking to file an expedited appeal. Uh, Simon & Schuster seems to be going along with them. Yeah, I'm going to be interested when the full opinion drops exactly how the reasoning shook out. But it does seem like even from this brief order that the judge essentially sided with the main arguments of the DOJ. Yeah, and and that that is important because of this this sort of monopsony theory of harm. And, and, and that idea is becoming more and more important because like the Biden administration and others have been calling for antitrust enforcers to, to sort of focus more on competition issues and things like labor markets. Uh, right. And in that case, a labor market would be uh, a case where they, we're talking about buyer's power in the market. Yeah, I think that is really interesting because there is so much talk about how this all plays into what's going on with workers and how they're paid. So this is a, a bit of a heady example of that, but I think maybe a sign of things that could come in the future. Yeah, definitely. Overall, where does this leave the publishing industry? I, I'm interested in how both sides reacted here um, and sort of while we're waiting on that full opinion, how have people taken the news? Yeah, I mean, the publishing industry, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. I mean, there were all these other bids for the company, too. So, so pr- presumably, Simon & Schuster could find another buyer if this deal uh, ends up getting blocked in the end. But yeah, I guess it'll be a question about what that buyer is, whether it's another one of the big publish- big five publishing companies, and then maybe we'll be hearing about right another challenge. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, you did say there was also some sort of um, private equity or some other like financial type groups that maybe would be a bidder. Right. And then, yeah, then it becomes problematic for some people because of the way private equity firms, I guess, you know, oftentimes sort of cut costs and things like that. And so at the end of the day, if that could wind up resulting in authors getting paid less anyway. Yeah, Matt, I I think it's interesting here for us to watch how this um, continues to be received and what happens on appeal, because monopsony cases may be starting to really ramp up under these same theory. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it'll definitely be something to watch. And and like I said, the the Biden administration, uh, they issued an executive order last year and they've talked a, uh, sort of a lot about this. Um, so I definitely don't think it's going away. Thanks so much for explaining it to us, Matt. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Dinner show is something offbeat. And Haley, one of your stories seemed perfect for today's show. Yeah, even while I was writing it, I was like, this screams offbeat to me. <laughs> this is going uh, on pod. This is this is pod tent. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. This is how the old noggin works these days. Um, <laughs> but Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, uh, most importantly, <laughs> yeah, right. the former of the former governor of California, less importantly, recently filed a Supreme Court brief. Our uh, dude, our boy, filed an amicus brief in support of North Carolina election officials who are battling state lawmakers' controversial legal theory that state courts should be barred from ruling on election policy. So this is a really, a really high-profile one. It's drawn a ton of briefs from so many different individuals and organizations weighing in. But... Uh, 
you love to see Arnold jumping in the mix. But were there any other briefs from people who have played undercover cops that <laughs> teach a kindergarten class? I mean, I'm thinking okay. this is probably the only one. Has Arnold ever been in a movie where he had to defend democracy? Because, like, this is about voting <laughs> and it's really heady, right? So, like, does that tie in anything he does? Well, I that mean... That feels more like Nicolas I mean, Cage's area, maybe. I mean, how I do know. you want to read the movie Commando? You know, I mean, you can, <laughs> you can look at it from a number of angles. I don't mean okay. to get all pointy-headed film critic here, but you could make the case. Well, Man. I do think it's really interesting here that we are seeing so many far-flung briefs in that case because... Yeah. The case itself is arguably one of the very biggest ones at the Supreme Court this term. So it's not that surprising to get a lot. But what made this one special, Haley? Well, let me first tell you what he just an overview of what he said in the brief. And then we'll get into why this is actually a very entertaining story. Sure. So just in the brief, his take is that this theory would essentially eliminate state efforts to curtail partisan gerrymandering. He said that it imperils the checks and balances needed for a functioning redistricting process, one that places voters' interests over legislators. So he's, you know, defending these election officials, shooting down the theory, very what you would expect, I suppose. But what we really need to talk about here <laughs> is what Schwarzenegger wrote on Twitter, because that ended up uh, spurring a nice little Twitter fight between him and former DOJ attorney and Donald Trump ally, Jeffrey Clark, who, you know, is uh, himself in a bit of a spot of trouble, if you will. Uh, he's facing some uh, a an ethics case and a whole slew of issues here. But so anyway, Schwarzenegger tweeted that. So he wanted to share his brief. And then he said, I had to something along the lines of you have to be very polite when you are filing a brief with the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Here on Twitter, I'm going to be less polite. <laughs> Frankly, this theory is nuts. And <laughs> that uh, drew the attention of Clark, who then dragged Schwarzenegger as a faux Republican, saying in his own tweet that the actor's brief means the Democratic Party is very, very concerned about how the case shakes out. So that's all, that's all fine and well. <laughs> I would like to start dissecting this here before we get to sort of the end of the buildup of the Twitter fight. But faux Republican, what happened to people saying rhino? Like that used to be the term yeah, they people used around to say all rhino the time. all the time. And you never hear that anymore. You don't. And also it feels like, why did that go away? Because it is an abbreviation. And so it's perfect for Twitter. I was, thinking, so I was actually talking to a friend about that the other day. People don't say it anymore. I think it's because it like sounds cool. Like a rhino is like a cool <laughs> animal. And so uh, yeah, it's not a good insult if it sounds too cool. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Like, like everyone's oh. pro rhino, so it's not. <laughs> yeah, good. right. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So what they else start the beef. Yeah, they start beefing back and forth. They don't use the term rhino. Baffling to me. Um, but where <laughs> where did we end up after that? So Schwarzenegger responded brilliantly. Just you know, not weighing in on the merits here by any means, but uh, just as far as Twitter beefs go, this response was fantastic. He shared a photo of Clark that was taken from body cam footage of, I believe, from a federal raid on Clark's house recently. <laughs> and Clark in this raid was wearing like boxer briefs. And if I recall correctly, the feds were like, look, you can stand like behind this car so that your neighbors don't see you, but we're not going to let you like hide in the garage while we're raiding your house. So it's this 
you know, very unflattering photo of him. <laughs> and Schwarzenegger... It's very diplomatic of you. Less diplomatic <laughs> than what the governor said. Go ahead. Indeed. So he said, thanks for the kind message. I loved this photo of you. But if you want some tips on squatting to build up those legs, I'm here for you. Going back to his roots. Wow. I mean, before he was an actor, he was a bodybuilder, as we know. And homie does not skip leg day. Uh, no, absolutely not. Listen, I've seen I've seen Terminator a bunch of times. This dude does not skip leg day. There is something so crazy to me about how when we started talking about this story, Haley, it sounds so logical. I mean, he's a former governor. He submits this brief. This really follows all the standards of what you would think he would say for the argument that's being made on that side and agree with it or disagree with it. It was very typical the way the brief was presented. But then once you slide on over to Twitter. It just all goes crazy over the there. Free for all. Free for all That's over there. That's always where it goes off the rails. <laughs> were there were there any like quippy action movie like one-liners in the brief, do you know? Like when he threw the knife at the guy in Predator and said stick around when he stuck to the wall? You know, I don't recall any, but that's a great question. And honestly, of just a miss from from Arnold. Like, <laughs> yeah, come on, man. He's, he's usually so good with catchphrases too. You'd think he'd work them into more things. I mean, it just seems like it would lend itself so easily. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that's what he's up to. We're always in case we were wondering. Yeah. Well, look, I think the real answer is that we'll be back next week. We need to end this show. <laughs> oh, wow. Sick. We thanks, will. Thanks. Yes. Uh, we got to end the show now because that was really bad line in my part. So got to get nah. out of here, guys. <laughs> thanks for being with me this week. Really appreciate it. Also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Matthew Perlman, and our contributing reporter, Bill Weikert. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform that definitely helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. See you back here next week. <laughs>